Reading of the word from Mark 9:33 through 41. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly, I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. I want to talk a minute about the coronavirus and how we as a church are preparing for its probable arrival here in Abilene. Now, it isn't in Abilene yet as far as we know, and we don't know how severe it'll be, but we want you to be prepared. Because we are Christians, we do not give in to fear. God calls us to do not be afraid over and over in scripture. Amidst the tumult of voices that call for panic or alarm, we center ourselves in the abiding truth of God. Because of the way God cares for creation, including humanity, we also create spaces and opportunities for us to join God in the safekeeping of God's people. We do not give in to fear but instead we act in love. Highland has always been a church that cares about all the generations, especially those that are at greatest risk from this virus. The data coming in from the World Health Organization and the Center for Disease Control says that this particular virus hits our older generations more than our younger ones, and is even more serious to people who have already compromised immune systems. One way to honor one another is to protect one another from harm. Therefore, we encourage you to take all precautions you deem necessary. That means if you would like to worship with us from home on the live stream for this season, we welcome your decision. We are paying close attention to the Texas Department of Health and the Center of Disease Control, and we will keep you updated if there's more information that we feel you need to have. If you are not sick, we eagerly welcome you to the assembly. Gathering as church in times of fear and anxiety is important. As always, the best way to prevent the spread of this sort of disease is to do something simple, like wash your hands. But we also want you to know about the precautions we are taking in our assembly. In the next few weeks, you will notice that as many doors as we can keep propped open, we will do so 
so that you don't have to touch the handles. Our greeters will be ready with a warm smile and a cheerful hello, but they may not shake your hand. There will be some additions to our children's check-in kiosks. There will be wipes, hand sanitizer, and even gloves as you use those computers if you choose. We will be cleaning surfaces that are frequently touched on a regular basis between services. As we did this morning, we will suspend our time of greeting for this season. We, consider, we encourage you to consider elbow bumps and waving hands to handshakes and hugs. Our communion service may look a little different in the next few weeks, and we are investigating the best way to move forward there. If you choose to join us in worship from home, we want to remind you of our online giving options. Your generosity helps us partner in the restoration of all things. You can text to give or give online safely and securely from our website. Finally, we will work with extra diligence as we have in the past to sanitize our children's classrooms and our adult classroom and bathroom uh, doorknobs and areas. We will continue, uh, there will continue to be sanitizing gel at the entrances to our auditorium, and we encourage you to use them. And there may be more ways in the next few months that as a body we can share in providing God's comfort to our city. One of the ways that you can engage that right now is to pray. Around the world, Christians from Iran to China, South Korea to California are praying for their communities, and so will we. And we will keep you updated on opportunities as they unfold. Let's pray together. Father, around the world, as we are joined by a host of saints, believers and disciples who are following your word and your son Jesus, from Iran to China, South Korea, to here in Abilene. We beg your mercy. And Father, we pray uh, that you will be present in this time of uh, crisis. And we ask that you be present to those who are sick and suffering. And Father, how it is in our realm of ability and how we are able, uh, please let us be your hands and feet that will share your comfort to those who are sick. And Father God, as we look for opportunities uh, to serve in your name this week and in the coming months, uh, fill us with courage. Let us be bold, but also wise in the way that we serve your people. It's in Christ's name we pray and the church says, amen. Rodney Stark in his book, The Rise of Christianity, seeks to answer an interesting, interesting question, which I think is relevant to what's going on in our culture right now. The question that Rodney Stark is trying to answer is, how did Christianity grow so fast in those first three centuries? You think about it, Christianity begins as a bunch of Galileans hiding in an upper room, afraid of what the government is going to do them, to them. To 300 years later, the emperor of Rome, Constantine, is baptized. How does it happen that Christianity goes from that upper room to half of the empire. Well, as we read the book of Acts, one of the things we see is that the Holy Spirit drives the gospel. 
The Holy Spirit breaks through barriers over and over and over. And it seems like in the book of Acts, the people of God are just trying to keep on and hang on to what the Holy Spirit is doing. But Stark notices that some of the growth of the Christian faith was due to the practices that led out from the beliefs of these early Christians, particularly the hope of heaven, the care for the least of these, and the belief that God truly loves everyone. One of the stories that he tells is um, how Christians would react to the exposing of babies. In the first century, if you couldn't afford or didn't want a child, the way that you could handle that is to take the infant to the woods and leave it there to die. You would expose it. Well, early Christians, believing that that life mattered, that child's life mattered, would go through the woods and find those babies and raise them as their own. Another story that Stark tells is about the plagues that hit the Roman Empire. In, uh, excuse me, in, in 165, 165, it was during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, a plague hit the Roman Empire. It's what historians believe to be the first incidence of smallpox in the eastern half of, the Rome, of Rome. And it had the same devastating effect in Europe that it had to the Native Americans in the 17 and 1800s. According to some reports, up to 30% of the population in cities and small towns died. A hundred years later, Rome was uh, hit by another plague. This time, historians believe it was probably measles, and that decimated the countrysides and the rural places. These plagues happened in a time when human beings had no concept of germ theory. They didn't know what it was. And so imagine how terrifying it must have been to all of a sudden witness the people around you getting sick in a brand new way. Even if you didn't know how the disease was transmitted, you might just react to your gut instinct to run. And that's exactly how most of the rich living in these cities did. If they had the means, they left and went to the countryside villas to wait out the plague, even if that meant leaving sick family members behind. Most everybody left, except the Christians. The Christians stayed behind. They took care of each other. They checked on their neighbors and their friends, whether they were Christian or pagan. And Stark notes that basic nursing care, someone that brings you food and water, bathes you and helps you change your clothes, just that basic level of nursing care creates a 60% higher survival rate than no nursing care at all. And if you've ever had the flu and your spouse or your family left you alone for the day, and you knew the pain of walking just to the kitchen to get some water by yourself, you know exactly what Stark is thinking about. Imagine that times walking down the street to the local fountain to get water or to a river, how difficult and taxing that would be. Because the Christians were willing to stay behind, willing to care for the least of these, they were often infected earlier and developed immunity faster. So much so that historians describe them like angels gliding among the dead. So what happens? When the plague is over 
And your pagan family who left you for dead comes back from the countryside. And the reason that you're alive is not because of them and their gods, but because of your Christian neighbor who brought you food and water and prayed in the name of Jesus. And then one day later, when that neighbor comes and says, I'd like to tell you about my Lord, what happens then? The pagan emperor, Julian, complained about the Galileans so much because they supported not only their own poor, but the pagan poor as well, and everyone could see that we didn't support them. It wasn't because Christians were supernaturally protected from the disease, but because in a time of crisis, they held on to the truth that they proclaimed, that love of neighbor and brother and sister really does matter, that the hope of heaven is real, and those that care for the least of these do so in the name of Jesus. Which kind of takes us to our text today in Mark chapter 9. It's not surprising that the disciples are having some sort of argument, but it is kind of surprising what they're arguing about. That is, who is the greatest? And you may have heard on uh, sports talk radio or uh, message boards on the internet, the greatest of all time, the GOAT. And this is a big debate. This is a big discussion. In basketball, the conversation is between LeBron James and Michael Jordan. As a quarterback, the discussion is between Tom Brady or Joe Montana, maybe. And as a dessert, it's between my grandmother's banana pudding with real whipped cream and homemade vanilla wafers and nothing else, because let's be honest, that's the goat. (laughs) The disciples are having this argument, who is the greatest? Which is kind of funny, because just in the story before this, they failed to cast out a demon. And Jesus is aware of this and he leans into this and he takes a child and puts them in his arms and says, if you want to be the greatest, welcome a child. Now this isn't because the first century necessarily valued children even the way that a 20th century person did. You know, a hundred years ago, you didn't buy your child, you bought your child at a hardware store because you needed them to do work for you. Now we buy children at boutiques because they need, we need them to represent something to us. But in the first century, a child with high morbidity rate and the value that children had in that society were not meaningful at all. And so for Jesus to pull a child into this is not to say that we need to have an excellent children's ministry, although we do. It's to say you need to value the thing that people think is the least important, the person that's the least important. And when you welcome them, you welcome me. And then the disciples, they want to stop some guy who's casting out demons in Jesus' name because they aren't with us. And I think that story hits closer to home to me but more than anybody else because, like, I'm the ultimate insider. I get it. Like, I'm the preacher here. And John comes forward, and Mark does something here that I've never noticed before. It's Peter, James, and John that are all witness to the transfiguration. 
It's those that see something that is miraculous that nobody else, not even any other disciples, see. And each of them in the course of the next two chapters of the book of Mark are going to not see what Jesus is about. Peter's not going to see it as we saw it last week. John doesn't see it as we see in this week. James is going to miss it next week. Even though they were part of the transfiguration, they need that second healing too. John's proud. When he comes to Jesus to tell him that, he thinks he's going to be rewarded or commended. He's going to do, he's doing his part. And so he goes to tell Jesus and he's like, hey, there's this guy casting out demons in your name, but he wasn't one of us, Jesus, so I stopped him. He thinks he's going to get a disciple sticker. And the disciples are surprised by Jesus' response. Jesus says, Look, whoever isn't against us is for us. This guy can't do something good in my name and then turn around and bash me. If they help us, they will be rewarded. I mean, this is especially funny. Remember, the disciples couldn't cast out the demon, and this guy is doing exorcism. This guy is doing ministry uh, in the name of Jesus. He is doing the ministry of Jesus And the problem is the way that John has is not that this man is following Jesus, but look at your text. The problem that John has is that he's not following us. Sometimes different people are faithful to Jesus in different ways, and that makes us nervous. There's this fascinating underculture in Silicon Valley, where I used to, to work. And it's a culture that's kind of slowly fading because of the corporatization of, of technology. But back in the, in the late 70s and the early 80s, back in the Waz years, he was the guy that actually built uh, Apple computers. Steve Jobs just kind of knew how to market it really well. Um, what was cool in tech was when you made something cool. And that spirit is still alive in Silicon Valley. And when I was at church, I met the guy that wrote the code for Frogger for PC. I think I bought that game when I was like eight years old so I could play it on my Apple IIe. And so when I met him, I was totally impressed. And so I was like, how did you do it? How He was 14 when he wrote Frogger. And basically what he did is he took $30 worth of quarters and he went to his local arcade and he just kept playing the game until he figured out how it worked. And he took notes and then he went home and he coded for hours and then he went back to the arcade. He went back and forth and back and forth and eventually he went to, I think, Atari and said, hey, I wrote your game for PC. I think you'd like to see it. And Atari looked at the game and they said, you wrote this? You're 14? And he's like, yeah. He's like, they said, we'd like to pay for your college. We want to buy your game, which was totally cool. This guy wrote Frogger. There was another guy that we went to church with, and he wrote the script for the mail uh, applet server for Apple. He wrote the uh, email protocol for Apple, and he wrote these little lines of code in it that allowed him and only him to have the email address K at apple.com. Every other email address at Apple needs three letters, but his only needs K. 
And you know what happened when anybody that's a geek or a nerd in Silicon Valley gets his card and they look down at his email address? They're like, whoa, this guy isn't just a nerd. He's a super nerd. And the thing about the 70s and 80s in tech in Silicon Valley is everybody was just doing this to make cool stuff. Most of them gave it away on the internet for free just because the impulse wasn't money. It was be to known as the person who made something cool, which was kind of ironic because that meant you were just a bigger nerd than everybody else. But in Silicon Valley, that's cool. Making, someone making something cool wasn't a point of competition or a reason to be offended. It was something to be celebrated. I want you to contrast that with a different power system. In Washington, D.C., one of the things that measures your worth in that system is how close you are to power. Nearly everyone I met there had a picture of them with either the president, which is the ultimate locus of power, or someone who had a closer relationship to power. The closer you were, the more important you were. If you got invited to a party or a ball at the White House, you were someone. And so the culture there was very different than the Silicon Valley 70s and 80s culture because it was very competitive to see who could be closest to power. And I think those two systems are the two systems that Jesus and the disciples are confronted with. It's so easy in a fractured Christian denominations to see brothers and sisters as either rivals for the best seat at the table or offering service that might get them a slightly larger market share. But that isn't the way of Jesus. It seems popular now to find the reasons to dismiss a brother or sister. Jesus, you wouldn't believe this, but I met people over there doing good things in your name, and they believe speaking in tongues was a good idea, so I told them to knock it off. Jesus, you wouldn't believe this, but I met a group over there doing good things in your name, and they said you can only sing without instruments, so I told them to go find a tambourine. Jesus, you wouldn't believe this, but I met a group of people over there doing good things in your name. And they believed that a slightly different doctrinal belief or practice than mine was better. And I told them to quit following you completely. You may not know this, but the Southern Hills Church of Christ, which is just down the street, at the beginning of this year, took an offering and erased $1.5 million of medical debt in Taylor County. That's awesome. I mean, that's amazing. The preacher down there, his name is Jared Robinson. He was my roommate in college. I'm a big fan. One of his ability to preach, but also his friendship. And Southern Hills has made it their goal to, to minister to the one-mile radius around their building. That's their focus of what they're doing. 
And I happen to live within that one mile radius. And so I see all of the things that they're trying to do to love their community, their neighborhood in the name of Jesus. $1.5 million, that's awesome. We didn't do that. And that does not diminish our ministry or service to God in the least. If they aren't against us, they are for us. You don't always know who's on the inside and who's on the outside. And most of the time, our gut instinct gets it wrong. If this text means anything, it means that it's not my job to decide who's in or who's out. That's Jesus' job. And I think most of us, if we're gut honest and we spend any time reflecting about our instinct on this, the person we're most likely to say is out, where you kind of want them to stop, is the place that we came from. If you grew up in a background that had its roots in legalism, and you feel that, and you have a gut reaction to that, it's instinctive in you, you just, ah, they just need to knock it off. Those aren't your servants. You aren't their master. That's Jesus' job to decide who is in and who is out. And you may have come from a, a denomination or a, a post-cushion environment that didn't regard Scripture as worthy of much and didn't know much what to do with, with Jesus as a person. And you've come to Highland and you found rich value and meaning in the Word of God. And you look back on your history and you think to yourself, man, those guys, they just have it wrong. Those aren't your servants, and you aren't their master. It's Jesus' job to decide who is in and who is out. Because you just don't know. Larry James, in one of the books that he writes, he, Larry James began as a suburban preacher in Dallas, but he was called into the inner city to work with the poorest of the poor. And it, he built Central Dallas Ministries, which later became City Square, which is a phenomenal service to the city of Dallas. But he began, Larry James began, working in a food pantry. He was the director of a food pantry. And Larry was quickly overwhelmed. One day, while trying to communicate with Spanish-speaking families, he didn't speak Spanish, he asked a woman named Josefina to help translate. She had come for assistance, but Josephina ended up helping Larry that day and the next. She came back the next day for nine years. God doesn't ask us our opinions about who God invites to the divine party. God invites everyone. And the kingdom work is handed out to the people who show up and to the people who are willing. And the kingdom of God is so much bigger than any one person's understanding. Thank God for that. Because Jesus turns up and he turns the whole thing on its head. If you want to express your greatness, welcome a child. Welcome the least of these. In doing so, you not only welcome Jesus, but the one who sent him. And while you're down there playing on your knees with blocks and cars and Lincoln logs, 
While you were there, bringing a cup of cold water to the sick and a smile to the lonely, while you were there engaging in the kingdom work and the acts of Jesus, you might just be surprised who's next to you. They may not look like who you think they should, but they are the hands and the feet of Jesus. We're going to begin a, a practice that we've kind of let drop uh, the last few months. In, in the rack in front of you, there's a connect card. And uh, it is a card. If you're a guest and visitor here, we would love for you to fill that out so that we can know that you are here. We would love to follow up with you about uh, some of the things that Highland does so that you can become a part in what we're doing, how we're partnering with God to restore Abilene, uh, Highland, and the world. Uh, but I'm going to let you guys know, we're coming up on Easter, and that's one of those holidays where people are likely just to come into church. And on Easter, I'm going to ask all of you to fill out this Connect card. And the reason why I want you to fill it out is not because we don't already have your email address or don't already know where you live. It's because if you're in the row filling it out, then that first-time visitor might just be more likely to fill it out too. And so this is coming. I'm just giving you a warning and a heads up that I'm going to ask you to fill out this card in a few weeks. But if you filled out that card today because you want to learn more, you want to get more connected, there's a couple of options about what you can do with that card. The first is you can bring it down to one of these boxes. I think there's a few in the back. You can drop it up. We're going to follow up with you later this week. Uh, the second option is to take that card with you back to a table in the atrium. It's called uh, there's going to be a big banner there called Next Steps. And there'll be a person there that can answer your questions about how you can get more connected to Highland, how you can learn more about the God who saved us, how you can plug into what God is doing in restoring this world. So if you have that Connect card, take it back to the atrium and meet someone there that is happy to answer your questions. Will you please stand for our benediction? The God who heals the sick resurrects the dead. And we lean into the truths that we have known as Christians and followers of Christ have believed for 2,000 years. That our God will not forsake us. And in the midst of fear, instead we choose love. May you be filled with God's presence and go in peace.